You're listening to Seed of the Woman, a podcast dedicated to telling the grandest story of all and to exposing the mystery of 666. Seed of the Woman is produced by the Gospel Story Arc Project, using the science of story to better tell who Jesus is. It's your story, too. Hello, everyone. Randall Gilmore here. Previously on Seed of the Woman, I identified Nimrod as the first man to associate himself with the mystery of 666 as he and his subjects begin building the city and Tower of Babel. Now, in this episode, I'm going to fill in more of Nimrod's story and more about the Tower of Babel, which will reveal Nimrod's involvement with the mystery of 666 and begin to unveil how this mystery has endured and how it will someday once again take over the world. But before we get started, I want to say two things. First, in coming episodes of Seed of the Woman, we're going to pause the story now and then to dialogue about what's been said so far. I think you're going to find these pauses very helpful because of how they'll contribute to your own connection to the story. Which leads to the second thing. I want to say thank you for all of the positive feedback about this podcast. Seed of the Woman would not be possible without listeners like you and your interest in telling who Jesus is, and in fostering appreciative love for Jesus, and in preparing ourselves and others for His return using the science of story. For more information on the Gospel Story Arc Project, Go to gospelstoryarc.org and remember, it's your story too. I'll take a quick break and return in just a moment. By now you know that Nimrod, the grandson of Ham and great-grandson of Noah, Nimrod came into the world several decades after the flood. Many years also after Noah announced the curse on Canaan because of Ham's shameful act of uncovering Noah's nakedness. Ham and Canaan, along with the rest of Ham's descendants, believed the curse meant that they would be cut off from the blessings of the seed of the woman, blessings now promised to the world through the line of Shem. The curse angered them from the start and was never resolved, eventually pricking every part of their lives with its thorns and thistles of bitterness and rage. By the time Nimrod was born, and especially by the time he rose to power, the family's bitterness and rage spread to all of Ham's descendants, producing a systemic, generational, and deeply rooted contempt for God and for his plan, a willful disdain that eventually coalesced and found its fullest expression in Nimrod. Generational anger and bitterness toward God and his plan was not entirely new. The world had seen it once before in Lamech, a member of the seventh generation of Adam's descendants through Cain. Cain, of course, was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, 
Cain murdered his younger brother Abel violently in a fit of premeditated rage because of the sacrifice that Abel offered, a firstborn sheep from his flock, reminiscent of the sacrifice God modeled when he made coverings for his parents. And so Abel made his offering by faith. Cain, on the other hand, showed contempt for God's model, offering a sacrifice of fruit from the ground, the same ground God had cursed in association with Adam's original choice to disobey. And so God rejected Cain's sacrifice, and he became violently angry and murdered his brother, whose sacrifice God accepted. And though God showed mercy to Cain when he confronted him and allowed him to live, Cain remained angry and used his influence going forward to spread his violent and rebellious way to generations of his descendants in the pre-flood world. Descendants including Lamech, who like his forefather Cain, killed a man and then shook his fist at God. Ultimately, God had to destroy the pre-flood world because of their violence, establishing that generational anger against him and his plan never ends well, as Nimrod also would find out in time. Now the chief city of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel, so that's where he and his subjects built the infamous tower, saying, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I explained last episode that the Hebrew word for name is Shem, and since Noah said that the blessings of the seed of the woman would come through Shem and not through Ham, Nimrod and his subjects determined to make a Shem for themselves. The Shem Nimrod and his subjects had in mind was a kind of portal to the heavens, the realm they believed remained a realm of blessing. And this takes us back to the curses God announced after the fall, against the serpent that it would crawl on its belly and eat dust, against the woman that she would have pain in childbirth, against the man that he would struggle in his work, and against the ground. After the flood, it became obvious that these curses were still in effect. Pain and suffering, struggle and death carried on. But there was something else just as obvious, something that occupied the hearts and minds of men going back much farther than Ham and Noah, that when God announced his curses in the garden, no mention was made of the heavens. Leaving the heavens out suggested that the heavens continued as originally blessed, and therefore as a fountainhead of blessings connected to the seed of the woman and the promised restoration. For this and other reasons, blessings coming out of the heavens to the cursed realm of the earth was constantly on the minds of the ancients, whether on the side of the serpent or the side of the seed of the woman. The patriarch Jacob, for example, dreamed of a ladder, quote, set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven, the angels of God ascending and descending on it, and the Lord himself standing at the top, announcing blessings on Jacob and his offspring. It's a story memorialized in Scripture, and also in the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Vav, which is said to represent Jacob's ladder, because of the way it's formed, a slight crook at the top as though it were connecting to the heavens, and extending down in a straight line as though also connecting to the earth. More importantly, the story of Jacob's ladder is one that Jesus himself used to identify himself as the promised Messiah, the seed of the woman. The Apostle Paul picked up on this connection, writing to the Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. And so Nimrod and his subjects turned to the heavens to build Babel and its tower and make a Shem for themselves. The tower was what historians call a ziggurat. Ziggurats were tall, multi-level structures featuring flights of steps leading to a gate at the top offering passage, their builders believed, to and from the heavens. Now, ziggurats were constructed thousands of years ago as public works projects in Mesopotamia, the region formed in the Middle East by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And because they were public works projects, building a ziggurat meant you were building a city, which is exactly how the Genesis account describes what Nimrod and his subjects determined to do when they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Building ziggurats as public works projects also meant using expensive materials and construction techniques. Materials such as kiln-fired bricks, mortared with expensive bitumen rather than common mud. Now, the various names the ancients used for ziggurats highlight their purpose as portals to the heavens. Names such as Temple of the Stairway to Pure Heaven and Temple which links heaven and earth. The connection to the heavens was featured on every one of the ziggurats' levels, with each level devoted to one of the planets. And on the uppermost level, a representation of the rest of the heavens using constellations of the zodiac. So by means of the tower, Nimrod and his subjects set out to build a replica of the solar and zodiacal systems as a portal into the heavens, taking us back to the mystery of 666 and its connection to the sun, traveling its circuit each year through the 36 constellations of the zodiac, and with the number 36, representing the series of numbers leading to a sum of 666. Now Nimrod and his subjects were not the first, nor are they the last, to study and keep track of the heavens and the movement of the sun. Adam himself, along with others in the line of his descendants through Seth, descendants that include Enoch and Noah, were familiar with the stars and the course of the sun through the 36 constellations. Familiar but not drawn into attempts to use them as portals into the blessings of restoration. Blessings they believed would come instead someday through the seed of the woman. Meanwhile, Nimrod and his subjects embraced Satan's counter story, a corruption of the true story of the heavens, a corruption they helped write. Believing in their anger, it empowered them to overcome God's judgments and plan. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth, they said, sensing they had to do something to memorialize their worldview and pass it on to future generations. And so they studied the sun and the stars, made their calculations, and added in myths and mysteries of their own, corrupting the true accounts of historical Bible characters and the things that actually happened to them, all in an effort to control, overcome, and make sense of their struggle of living in a cursed realm apart from God. But how did Nimrod and his subjects corrupt the stories of other Bible characters? And how exactly do the sun and the stars contribute to their counterstory? And how did Nimrod and his subjects manage to carry their counterstory forward to this very day in the political, economic, and religious systems of the world? More next time on Seed of the Woman.